0: Well, good morning. If you're uh, just visiting Cornerstone, my name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. It's so good to have you. We're continuing our Advent series using the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day to prepare our hearts in anticipation, not only to celebrate Jesus' birth, but also to celebrate the hope that Jesus is coming again, that he will finish what he started in this world and in our lives and throughout this week, or this whole month, we've been focusing on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been using these devotionals by Sinclair Ferguson, and I hope that that's been a blessing to you as you've read through them. But all of it focuses around this idea of love, that, that what Christmas is all about, what, what Jesus did in taking on flesh and being born in that, as that baby, was to make God's love known to us. So we've been talking and studying and meditating on love. In the first week of our series, we were in 1 John 4, and we talked about how love is defined by God because God is love. And we connected that to this amazing idea that the Bible teaches us, that God is three in one, that he is a trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living eternally in a perfect relationship of self-giving love. We've been looking at this quote a few different times by Tim Keller where he describes this mysterious thing of the Trinity where he says that the life of the Trinity of our God is characterized not by self-centeredness but by mutual self-giving love. Each of the divine persons centers on the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And that creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. We've been using that metaphor of a dance to describe this idea of mutual self-giving love that defines who God is. And that even defines what it means for us to love. That we were created to join in this dance of mutual, self-giving love. We've been looking at this definition of love throughout our series. That love is not just a feeling, not just attraction. It is the enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of the other person. But we've seen how starting with the first man Adam and woman, Adam and Eve... We've all stepped out of this dance of mutual self-giving love. We've all turned from seeking the good of the other to seeking what we think will be good for ourselves. Our love turned inward. It became self-focused instead of self-giving. And as Todd showed us last week as we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, Whatever we may do in this life, if our actions are not motivated by this love, by this enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of the other person, it's just noise. It profits me nothing. I, I am nothing. That ultimately, this love that we're talking about is so essential because love doesn't just make the, our actions better. It makes them matter at all. Without love, it doesn't matter regardless of how flashy or impressive what someone may do may seem to us. But when love is that motivation, regardless of how commonplace and normal it may seem, it matters. That's the wonder of Christmas, isn't it? This story of this little baby being born to a, a poor couple and laid in an animal's feeding trough. What is remarkable about that? Nothing. Jesus was born in obscurity, and yet, as we just sang, in the hills nearby, the hosts of heaven are crying out glory to God in the highest because contained in this small, inconspicuous event, love had come down. That's amazing, isn't it? Jesus came to break the power of our selfish love, to break the power of sin and death, and call us back into this dance. Last week, Todd left us with the blessing of saying, may you dance well this week. How did you dance this past week? How did you love God and others this past week? As we've been in our devotionals this week, we've been looking at kind of the middle portion of 1 Corinthians 13, where where Paul in short succession gives us 16 descriptions of love. Seven of them are positive about what love is and what it does. But nine of them, even more, are negative about what love is not, what love does not do. That what we have in this passage is not just a description of love, but a correction of love, confronting the ways that we tend to go off course. So here's the question I have for you. As you read through and prayed through these descriptions of love this week, what did you learn? What did you learn about God's love for you? What did you learn about your love? I was joking this morning that there's 16 descriptions of love and I was planning to spend five minutes on each one, so we'll be here for about 80 minutes. Now, we're not going to be able to go through each one line by line. I'm going to trust that you have been taking advantage of that resource we gave you and have been meditating through this. But what I want to do is just kind of guide us through what do we do with all the things that have been brought up in our hearts and in our minds over this past week? Because I think this passage is meant to do two things. It's meant to show us both God's love for us, and it's meant to show us a realistic picture of where, at, where we are at in this journey of love. In James 1, James talks about how God's word is like a mirror through which we look to see an accurate picture of what's going on in our hearts. So as you looked into the mirror of God's word this week, what did you see? One of the things that that Sinclair Ferguson, in the introduction to the devotional, encourages us to do is he encourages us to take this same passage and to replace the word love with our own name and see how far we get. That Christian is patient and kind. That Christian, I don't even want to go any farther. I'm just going to stop there, right? (laughs) I mean, seriously, if if you did that, if you truly searched your heart on these things this week and you went through it and just kind of went, yep, check, 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 doing pretty good on all of those, either you weren't really paying attention to what you were doing or or perhaps more sadly, you, you truly are blind to the real state of your heart. If you're anything like me, this this week has been this total mix of conviction and encouragement. i look through that list and I go, sheesh, there's a lot of places where I need to grow. But by the grace of God, I also look at that list and go, wow, I'm not where I used to be on some of these. There is growth. God is changing me. Perhaps the one I think that probably smacked me in the face the hardest this week in a really good way was that one in the middle where it talks about how love is not irritable not easily angered. I came across this devotion as we were reading it this week, this quote from what Ferguson said, where he talks about what irritation is really all about. He says, Irritation by whatever name we call it, whether caused by other people or our circumstances, is at root irritation with God for the way that he is providentially governing our lives. We blame our circumstances, other people, our background, even our genes, But none of these can function apart from God's sovereign will and purpose. He is in control. Only when we have yielded to the sovereign will of God, knowing that he will, in his own infinite, amazing way, work everything together for our good, do we learn a healthy spiritual detachment from the irritations of life. So he concludes with this. He says, the remedy for irritability, therefore, will not be found in a determination to be less irritable, but only in a sense of the love of God for me and in the trust that it produces. As I wrestled with the irritability in my heart, how things are just sticking to me, how easily discouraged I feel like I am in this current season of my life, that connection between irritability and lack of trust in God was so profound and helpful for me. It helped me to see that in the midst of that easily angeredness that I'm wrestling with, I had fallen back in some ways into a love that insists on my own way and is upset when I don't get it. That in some ways I wasn't trusting that ultimately God is enduringly, willingly committed to my good. I realized I wasn't dancing very well. And so the question is, what do we do when we realize we're not dancing well? What do we do when we realize that that our love is out of sorts? You don't just look inward. You don't just try to be less irritable. You look to Jesus. I love that that's what Ferguson has done each day in this devotional. He says, this is what this attribute of love looks like. Here's some illustrations from life, but really now let's look at Jesus. Jesus. In his introduction, he said, in the same way that we could put our name into this passage, he says, you can also put Jesus' name in. And this is much easier to read. And this is being built so much hope. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is the perfect embodiment of this love. You see, because God's word is not just a mirror that we look at to see what we look like. Even more than that, it is a window through which we see what God is like. I love the way that John puts it at the end of his gospel. He says, man, there's so much more that I could have told you about what Jesus did and said, but here's why I told you what I did. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of God's word. If you don't currently have this habit, I would say make a regular habit of reading the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books in the New Testament that give us this kind of stereo picture of the life of Jesus. We ought to be regularly filling our minds with the words and the actions of Jesus because ultimately, he's the one that we're following. Yes, we look to Jesus for our salvation. We, we look to Jesus for that hope of eternal life. But the way that Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 3 is he says that Jesus is also the one who set an example for us so that we might walk in his steps. We are to model our lives after what we see in him. That's what it means to be a disciple. And what happens as we read the Gospels, as you've seen as you spent time in the devotionals this week as well, what we see in Jesus' words and actions is the embodiment of this love that we're talking about. We see Jesus model a love that is kind radically kind to those who tended to be overlooked and undervalued in his society. You see the time he takes with the woman at the well, with the Syrophoenician woman who felt like she didn't even have a right to demand anything from Jesus. You see him receive the worship of the woman who came and anointed his feet with oil. You see the way that he welcomed little children to himself when the disciple says, oh, Jesus has got big grown-up stuff to do, stay back. He was kind. We see Jesus modeling a love that, as Paul says, does not rejoice at unrighteousness, but instead rejoices with the truth. This was one of those things that people couldn't understand about Jesus. They saw him as this friend of tax collectors and sinners and drunkards, that those are the people he spent time with. He had this amazing way of speaking love and value to those people without joining them in their wickedness, without celebrating that which was wrong in their lives. He ate with tax collectors, but he did not collect taxes with them, right? I love what we see in that picture of Jesus with the wee little man, Zacchaeus, in Jericho. Zacchaeus climbs in the tree to see the Lord, and Jesus sees him and says, I'm coming over. And what you see through the kindness, through the grace that Jesus shows Zacchaeus is so remarkable, because... It doesn't take long before the, the, the envy, the, the greed, the arrogance that dominated Zacchaeus' life beforehand, he encounters Jesus and goes, what the heck would I want to keep this for? He says, Lord, listen, if, if I have, I'm, I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor right now. And even from the half that's left over, if I've defrauded or taken too much from anybody, I will pay it back four times as much. The way that that just that encounter with the kindness of Jesus released Zacchaeus' heart from that arrogance and that greed and that envy. Jesus did not rejoice at the wrongdoing that had dominated Zacchaeus' life beforehand. But he rejoiced in that moment that today salvation had come to that house because he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus puts this love on display for us. He models for us a love that is supremely patient. I loved what Ferguson said, that even the baby in the manger is such a symbol of the patience of our God. The centuries of preparation, the centuries of waiting, the centuries of bearing with the unfaithfulness of his people to get to the point where, as Paul says in Galatians, at the fullness of time, when it was the right time, Jesus was born. And yet that same baby in the manger, God in human flesh, was patient for three more decades until his ministry began. And then he was patient throughout that ministry as we see him gather together 12 men, commit his life to them for three and a half years to walk with them and to teach them and to prepare them to carry on his mission, knowing all along that Judas, one of the 12, would betray him. Another way of understanding this idea of patience in in 1 Corinthians 13 is this idea of long-suffering. Jesus suffered long with Judas. He loved him to the end, even though in the end Judas turned on him. We see Jesus model a love that does not seek its own way, The most powerful picture of this. I mean, we see Jesus throughout his ministry say, the words that I'm saying are not my own, they're my father's. I'm here to do my father's will. I am a part of this self-giving, mutual love of the Trinity, so watch the way I honor my father in everything that I do. I do not seek my own glory, I seek my father's glory. And you know what? He seeks my glory. The place where you see this most profoundly is there in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus is crucified, knowing that Judas and the mob are coming to arrest him. And Jesus becomes distressed and he's on his knees before the Father. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, is there any other way If this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, please, is there any other way? You see this this truly, I would say, a a good battle of the will in Jesus at that moment, saying everything in me is not looking forward to the suffering that I'm about to go into. Is there another way? Is there another option? And yet, what does he say at the end of each prayer as he prays that three times? Not my will, but yours be done. Love does not seek its own way. Love is not irritable, and you watch Jesus deal with the irritations all throughout his life, even culminating in that suffering, even culminating in the crowds mocking and beating and spitting on him. I marvel at the way that Peter, who's who's in some way there observing all of this, he goes, in the midst of people reviling Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. All of this is going on is wrong, but ultimately, I Father, I trust you that you are enduringly, willingly committed to my good. And so I'm going to go forward. Jesus modeled for us a love that is not resentful. This is that one that maybe in your translations, it says that it does not keep a record of wrongs. You see Jesus. If you, when's the last time? Sometimes we get familiar with these stories, so they stop surprising us. When's the last time you read the account of Jesus' crucifixion, and you see in the act of being nailed to the cross, what is he praying? Father, forgive these men. They don't know what they're doing. Like, How do you do that? How is that what's on Jesus' mind in that moment? Like that, this is love that I, oh, I'll never get, I feel like sometimes I'll never get close to that. But I will. I have this hope that, that Jesus is at work in me to produce that same love in me. I marvel at the way that Jesus keeps no record of wrongs because what I see as I look at Scripture is that He absolutely did keep a very detailed record of my wrong and yours. But what did he do with that record? I love the way Paul puts this in Colossians 2. He says, for we who know and follow Jesus, we were dead in our sins beforehand, but God has now made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Forgiven. How did he forgive us? Oh, don't worry about it, no big deal. No, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, With its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How is it that Jesus' love for us keeps no record of wrongs? Because he took that record of wrongs and carried it to the cross, and it was nailed to him. Think about that. The very same body that, that Mary so tenderly wrapped and laid in the manger. Jesus was born in that body to bear your sin and mine on the cross. He lived in that body so that body might be hung, exposed, and beaten on the cross. So that it might lie cold and dead in a stone tomb for three days. So that it might rise in victory three days later. That's what this is all about. Some of you, some of us, we've heard this idea as long as we can remember, before we can remember, yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I might be forgiven. But something happens, doesn't it? Even for those of us who've grown up with this amazing news to the point where we forget how amazing it is because we've heard it so long. Something happens when you're put in a situation where you now need to forgive. Where someone has wronged you and you you want to hold on to it. You want to keep a very detailed account of it. You want to hold this against them. Resentment comes so naturally for us. And now, all of a sudden, forgiveness is not some easy, cheap thing. It is incredibly costly to you personally. And in that moment, if you have eyes to see it, you see what Jesus has done for you in a completely different light. You see the costliness of your own efforts to forgive, and you say, seriously? So much more you bore for me? You modeled for me a love that truly bears all things. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced what the song, um, It Is Well With My Soul says, the bliss of the glorious thought that my sin not in part but the whole, all of it is nailed to that cross and I bear it no more. Have you felt that weight lift off your shoulders knowing that Jesus placed that on his shoulders? You see, the mark of one who is truly a follower of Jesus is that we don't just see Jesus as an example of love. We don't just see him as someone who lives live a loving lifestyle that we're seeking to emulate. We believe deep within our soul that Jesus loves us. That he loves us personally, intimately, experientially in all the ways that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. I love the way that, that, um, that uh, I can't think right now. John, the, 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 the Apostle John says it in First John 4 when he says this. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. To come to know it And believe it. These are not just words on a page. These are not just old stories. Jesus is not just a great person whose example I want to follow. I have come to know and believe that in Christ, this God loves me. Have you come to know that? That God is enduringly, willingly committed to your good. That even more than that, he is your greatest good that his commitment to seek your good is ultimately the commitment that you would prize him and value him above all else because he is the greatest good. Have you encountered that love? If not, I pray that today is the day that you do. If you have encountered, if you do know and believe the love that came down at Christmas is for you, the only logical response is that you will begin to love this God in return and seek to love others like you've been loved. I mean, look at the way that John continues just a couple verses later. He says, this love that we now know and believe, we are now able to love. We love because he first loved us. We join in the dance in the midst of that mixture of conviction and encouragement that we feel as we look at this passage, I think that a passage like 1 Corinthians 13 is designed by God to create this, this, almost this cycle in our lives. That as you look at this and you see this is the love that Jesus has displayed for you, doesn't it draw your heart to worship? Doesn't it draw your heart to go, wow, God, you are incredible as we see the beauty of God's love, our hearts are drawn to love him in return and to want to be like him. And as we, out of an understanding of God's love, seek to love people in the same way, we endeavor to love. And you know what we find out? I want to be like Jesus, but I'm not there yet. We are able to see and be honest with where we are still unformed in our love. And that, if you let it, leads you to this really honest place of confession. Not the super secret thing that you do in a booth with a priest, but just a, 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 a genuine honesty with God and with those in your lives in which you acknowledge what you know to be true about God and what you know to be true of yourself. As I rustled, like I said, with that irritability, seeing how much I still want my own own way, here. I mean, this... This is just what I was confessing to the Lord, and I want to confess to you as my church family as well. And it began first was confessing and saying, Jesus, you love me so perfectly. I believe that. I've come to know that. And I want to love others like that, but but I see the way that my impatience and my irritability and my desire for my own way, that they get in the way of my love. I want to turn from these things, and please forgive me, Lord, and teach me. Change me. Teach me to love like you do. That's where I'm at this morning. I believe this love. I want to love like that. I see where I'm not like that. And so what happens is that when you, when you go to God in confession, you're acknowledging your dependence upon him to teach you to do this, to empower you to do this. That we are dependent upon God's love to teach us to love. And as you depend upon God's love to teach you to love, you know what happens? You start to see the beauty of God's love in new and amazing ways which again draws your heart in worship and love and to want to be more like him. And the cycle begins again. That's this life that we've been called into as followers of Jesus. But the thing that we find is this. On this side of eternity, between now and when Jesus comes back, we will not get this perfectly. I have that perfectionistic tendency. And I think, honestly, one of the biggest things I've wrestled with this week is like, seriously, I'm gonna keep tripping up I'm going to keep learning, and some of you guys are going, seriously, who did you think you were? Exactly. Exactly. For the rest of our lives, we will be in the school of Jesus, learning more of his love for us, learning more how to love one another. As we'll see next week in the last part of 1 Corinthians 13, what Paul does is so amazing. He he talks about the reality that the difference between the way that we learn to love now and the way that we will love when Jesus returns is like the difference between childhood and adulthood. That no matter how long you have walked with Jesus, all of us are still kids. We're still learning how to form our letters in this school of love. We're still learning from our Father who loves us. That means we're still going to trip up. We're still going to skin our knees. We're going to make messes. We're going to get it wrong. And that's okay. Our father knows that we're children and he loves us and he's patient with us even when we're not patient with each other. At the same time though, sometimes we'll get it right. Sometimes we will experience through our own actions, through the actions of others in our lives, glimpses of that love. And we ought to celebrate those. Just like you celebrate your kids' art that they put up on the fridge. Oh, it's a horse. Thanks for telling me it was a horse. Let's put it up on the fridge. I love it. <laughs> to celebrate, it kind of looks like the way that God loved me. But look at he's at work in us. He's teaching us. Let's celebrate that well. Let's encourage one another, not just where we need to grow, but when we see that growth, when we catch those glimpses, it gives us so much hope. But as we'll see next week, There is a day coming, Paul says, when the perfect will come, when we will no longer see in part, but we will see the whole, when we will fully grow up in love and we will love God like, and one another like he's loved us. That is an amazing day. That will be quite a day, amen? I wanna invite the band back up. We're gonna close by singing a Christmas song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. One of the things I love about this song is it's not just a backward-looking song, it's a forward-looking one as well. It builds in us this sense that God has done something amazing in our lives we will be eternally grateful for, but we want more. We want to see Jesus return and make all things new and grow us up in this love. We sing in anticipation of his return. And I would say as we sing this prayer, sing it from your heart. If you need prayer, if you want to talk with someone about what it means to follow Jesus, or if you're just struggling with this love, some of us will be up here at the prayer and we'd love to pray with you. But would you pray with me now as we get ready to sing? (sighs) Jesus, thank you for showing us love. Thank you for being that perfect example in living color of what this love looks like. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you are not just our example. You love us you are more passionately committed to seeking our good than we are. Thank you for that. Thank you that when we are impatient, you are still patient with us. When I am irritable, you are not irritated with me because you bear it all. You endure it all. When I want to give up, when we want to give up on on relationships, on friendships, when it just feels too hard to love people, your love endures with us and can empower us to endure Would you keep us going in this school? Would you grow us up in love? We ask this in your name, amen.